So it's not every day that I get to hear someone make the argument that things actually aren't as bad as they seem, particularly when it comes to AI. So why do you think that this is the case with deepfakes? I mean, first I want to say that I used to be very nervous about deepfakes, but we've had deepfake technology for, it's almost the seventh year anniversary of when we've known about deepfakes, and they've been pretty good for much of that time. And by pretty good, I mean, to my eyes, indistinguishable from reals. And we keep hearing that, you know, at any moment the bomb is going to go off, but it's been seven years and the things that we've been worried about haven't happened, like dramatically haven't happened. So I think it's a good time to ask the question, do we have the right worries? That's Daniel Immervar, a professor of U.S. and global history at Northwestern University. This week, The New Yorker published its first ever special issue about artificial intelligence. In it, Immervar wrote a piece about deepfakes in American politics and culture. Deepfakes as in the technology that makes it possible to show public figures saying or doing just about anything. And it's getting more sophisticated all the time. But despite that, deepfakes aren't having the influence that anyone anticipated. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. So let's make sure that our listeners understand just everything about the terminology we're using. So a deep fake. I mean, what is the difference between that and any sort of doctored video or photo, like an image that's been photoshopped or video that's been kind of like falsified in some way? Is it the AI element? Yeah, so a deepfake is a video or audiovisual recording that's been altered um, using AI technology. And we've always been able to do that kind of stuff, but it's often taken you know, a lot of money uh, and a lot of CGI investment. It's the kind of thing that only a Hollywood studio could do, you know, de-aging an actor mm-hmm. or something like that. But now it turns out that loan programmers using cheap software can do that and actually can do it better than Hollywood studios can. We're all Martin Scorsese now, I guess. It's wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, So what are the most common kinds of deepfakes out there currently? Porn. A hundred percent porn. Sorry, it is not a hundred percent porn. That's an exaggeration. But the last time we had a study of someone counting up all the deepfakes, and this was a couple years ago, 96% of them were pornographic. And there is very good reason to think that that's roughly true today. And basically, if you are a female celebrity, uh, you know, of a certain age, you can pretty much assume that there is going to be a deep fake produced of you having sex. Um, and that's both humiliating potentially or deeply discomforting to you. And also, you know, it's non-consensual and, and potentially humiliating, discomforting to the porn performer whose face has been erased and your face has been glued onto it. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a technology that already has taken off in a bunch of sinister ways, you know, especially in areas where like a full on, you know, deception isn't necessarily the goal. Like I would assume that the yeah. people who are watching yeah. these, you know, deep fakes of celebrities like that they don't necessarily care that it's a, a deep fake. No, that's exactly right. And presumably some part of it is a fantasy world. You know, what if I had access to this famous person having sex, you know, in in this way that I want to see? Great. Now here it is. Um, But one presumes that another part of it is, is a kind of humiliation of women, right? So like there's a moment in the 18th century when suddenly print technology becomes really much more accessible than it had been. And immediately what happens is there's just like a flood of um, humiliating pornography about Marie Antoinette just depicting her 
A, sleeping with people who are not her husband, which then implies that her children aren't legitimate heirs, but then B, just having all kinds of threesomes, lesbian affairs, just like just doing everything that like the French revolutionary, like erotic mind can, can conjure up. And on the one hand, it's, it's porn, but it's profoundly political porn because it's about it's anti-monarchical. It's a, it's a, it's a strike against the powerful, but it is also viciously misogynistic at the same time. And all of that still kind of thrums through the ways in which media manipulation works. I mean, how have they been used in politics so far? I mean, have you seen a deep fake trying to push a certain narrative or, you know, depict a politician in a negative light? Um, deep fakes emerged from pornography and um, pretty quickly, people started to get nervous about precisely what you mentioned, the possibility that they would um, hop the fence and enter politics. And there's two really terrifying scenarios. One is that politicians could use deepfakes to deceive voters or to trigger a, a, a political crisis that might redound to their favor. There's a long history of dictators manipulating photographs that suggests that this is, in fact, the kind of thing that you might be worried about. Uh, and then there's this sort of bank shot worry, which is actually quite a serious one, too, which is that even if politicians or their supporters aren't altering video the very fact that you know this could be done means that any audiovisual evidence, which is, you know, kind of the most direct and compelling forms of evidence that we have in the media, it would seem, is tainted. Because anyone can just say, yeah, sure, there's a video of me saying, for example, that I take pleasure in sexually assaulting women, but actually that video was faked. And in fact, Donald Trump has claimed that that video was faked, even after he released a video apologizing for saying all the things he said in that video. The Access Hollywood tape? The, I'm sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking a little bluegly. The Access Hollywood tape, yeah. So then the big question is, why hasn't that happened, right? We're, we're in a moment when all the political knives are out, everyone's in their filter bubbles. Uh, the ease of editing video has, has just has gotten, it's gotten alarmingly simple to do. And you think that someone would have done it. And it's just really hard to come up with examples of that. You can come up with kind of examples. Um, Putin released a deepfake of Zelensky, surrendering, but it was really unconvincing and it doesn't seem like anyone was convinced by it. So we're either we're just sort of waiting for the bomb to drop and it'll go off at any minute, or we've been thinking about deepfakes wrong and it's not the kind of thing that's very likely to happen. So in your piece, you um, you cite a philosopher who uses the phrase epistemic apocalypse in relation to yeah. deepfakes. Can you explain that idea? I mean, is that kind of what you were talking about, just this idea that we can't trust anything we see? Yeah. So the, the fear uh, is that we're going to have a sort of epistemic core meltdown and that once once we no longer can trust some of the most compelling evidence, then, you know, we're thrown through the looking glass and we don't believe anything. And we're in this kind of like nothing is real sort of world where everything just becomes vibes and, you know, personal truths. Uh, and and that that's a scary thought. Um, the philosopher who gave it that particular term, Joshua Habgood Coote, who's a really terrific philosopher, uh, was writing with a bit of skepticism, though. Um, and he he also takes the view that um, it's interesting that the epistemic apocalypse has not been triggered. And we might ask, like, what has what has kept us going after seven years of this possibility? Because it doesn't even actually take anyone maliciously using deepfakes to trigger the epistemic apocalypse. It just takes people knowing that deepfakes exist. And we've known about deepfakes for quite a while, and yet we still seem to be kind of okay. So why is that? Are we better than expected at being able to discern the real from the fake, even if something looks incredibly convincing? What's happening here? Yeah, I think the theory when we're getting very nervous about deepfakes is a theory about the credulous consumer, 
right? We know that we're pretty sophisticated as consumers of media, but they, oh my gosh, they are, you know, are simple enough that if they just see one, you know, form of media that's both compelling and false, they'll be entirely deranged. And, you know, I don't actually think that's how most of us make up our minds. Like, just imagine how you would react if you were presented with compelling video that showed something that seemed to violate your sense of, like, who a person is or, or their priors. It's, you'd probably ask questions. You'd probably say, okay, where did this video come from? Do other people believe it? Does it uh, ring true with my common sense? Are there, what what other reasons to believe it? Uh, I feel like if this is the kind of thing that were true, I would have heard about it by now. We have all sorts of ways to collect evidence about evidence and to contextualize our evidence. And in fact, we've been doing that for decades. Photography, which is the other kind of immediate medium that we've been using to to collect evidence, has been broken since it started. We've always had uh, the ability to alter photographs and alter them in fairly compelling ways. And yet we still use photography well because we understand that photography can be hacked, but we also understand that like collectively we can kind of suss that out when it is. And, and through that process of social verification, we're still able to rely on photography. I mean, I, I think you're right that, like, if I saw a video of something that just really didn't um, kind of match my feelings about reality or just my feelings about a certain the person who's being depicted in the video in a certain light, like, I definitely would question it. But I feel like, I mean, just putting my cards out on the table here, like, if I saw a video of, you know, Trump saying something horrible or of Joe Biden messing up during a speech and forgetting something. Like, if if you see something that kind of matches the real videos that are already out there, I feel like it's much easier to believe those. And so I'm wondering why there aren't more deep fakes that have been effective in kind of pushing forward a narrative that already exists. And this has already been proven by, you know, real content. Yeah. So, okay, there's two possibilities. One is the deep fake shows you something wild, right? Mm -hmm. It's the smoking gun bit of evidence. And then I think a lot of us just would ask the question, like, is this real evidence? And if it's a big deal, there'd be a lot of talk about it. And, you know, presumably it would not take long for people to say, actually, this is a deep fake. And, and then we learn that. Um, and so now you're imagining evidence that is just like two notches away from the real, like Biden didn't say this, but it's the kind of thing that maybe he could have said. In that sense, it already becomes a less consequential deep fake. But it also is true that all the other stuff that helps us know when things are wrong applies in this case too. If it becomes a big deal that there's a video of Biden saying something he didn't actually say, I feel pretty confident that anyone who is involved in the discourse would pretty quickly know that that's a um, fake video and, and would start to hunt for, you know, who had created the fake. And um, so here's something interesting. I mean, we've been able to do compelling fake photographs, you know, f since we've been able to do photographs. And there's really very few cases of people using photography effectively to sway elections. And part of the reason is it backfires. If you put out a fake photograph, then people notice that it's a fake, uh, even if it's visually compelling, even if to the site it looks totally real. There are all other kinds of ways in which we can determine what's real and what's fake. And then it becomes a dangerous thing to do, to rely on faked evidence, because then you're implicated. You know, just thinking about deep fakes and their use in modern politics or the lack of use, like, I mean, is there a way to know that they're not actually working? Or is it the kind of thing where the next election, you know, happens and then we realize after the fact that actually people were really influenced by these videos or um, by the deep fakes that were that were going around in the same way that it was only after, you know, the 2016 presidential election that we started talking seriously about all the misinformation that had been on social media and how yeah. influential that had been? 
Yeah. Uh, well, one reason to not be worried about that as much is that it just doesn't seem like there are deep fakes going around that are of the kind that everyone is most worried about, which is malicious political deepfakes. There is a lot of misinformation and the internet is throbbing with manipulated videos. But despite the fact that we can do deepfakes and despite the fact that everyone is sort of in the manipulating video game, the manipulated videos that do make the rounds, those are not deepfakes. Those are cheap fakes. Those are produced with just like fairly crude technology. And often they are transparently fake. Often no one would think they would real, but they're just a way of kind of you know, in a sort of meme kind of fashion, exaggerating reality to make a point rather than to deceive anyone. So I want to go back to the the history of deepfakes. I mean, you, you were talking about how um, there's the photography stuff. Deepfakes in general kind of belong to this tradition that seems to go back hundreds of years. In your piece, you get into some examples of like dictators using um, doctored images and, yeah. and whatnot. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So part of the deep fake alarmism has to do with this notion that we do have a long history of political deception through media manipulation. And so once you have politicians capable of deceiving people, then, you know, you're on the road to totalitarianism. Um, and it's true. It really is true that um, authoritarian states on the right and the left have relied heavily on darkroom editing. Uh, there's a lot of photo manipulation that happens in, in those kinds of governments. But it's not obviously true that that editing was deceitful. I mean, one of the really interesting things about a lot of dictatorial darkroom work is just how incredibly petty it is. It's like, you know, making the dictators look handsomer than they are. It's taking, you know, a, a favored functionary and pulling them closer into the frame or famously taking a disfavored comrade and editing them, at, them out. On the one hand, it feels kind of chilling, like someone's been erased from reality. On the other hand, it also feels very middle school. You know, Becky's not in the club anymore, so like she's not in the picture. So, um, and, and it's far from clear that anyone was deceived by that. I mean, the photos look totally glazed over and faked. And if you'd been following politics at all, you you know that the person who's like not in the photographs this year had been in all the photographs last year. You don't suddenly think that they never existed. If we were to see a rise of political deepfakes today, I mean, do you think that it might gravitate toward that kind of petty content where it's like, you know, a video of Trump where his tan looks a bit more natural or where, you know, Joe Biden looks, you know, a bit younger. I guess like voters wouldn't necessarily buy that, but it sounds like maybe that kind of um, deep fake would be more effective than a deep fake P tape or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, maybe. But it. I mean, look, first of all, let's just say we already do have that. I mean, Trump releases all kinds of stuff like that. You know, he releases images of himself as a muscle-bound superhero with lasers coming out of his eyes. And that does something for the base. Like, people take pleasure in seeing an artistic representation of Trump as he appears in their mind's eye. Now he that's how he appears on their screens. And that's really exciting. Um, it's interesting that there's a lot more energy that goes into that kind of exaggeration of reality rather than the subtle retouching of reality. Well, you know, actually, we can think about it like this. We have the capability to retouch reality because magazines do that all the time with their fashion models. And it, it, it's interesting that that kind of energy hasn't been invested into politics in the same sort of way. After a quick break, we're going to talk about something even more influential than deepfakes, memes. You'll hear more from Daniel Immervar on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a minute.
I mean, in your piece, you make the case that um, what researchers have found is not high quality deep fakes, but rather low quality memes. Yeah. And um, those are actually more effective than deep fakes. I mean, I guess I, I ask it in a way as though I, I don't know that the answer is yes, that the memes somehow work. Right. Why is that? You know, it, it's sort of counterintuitive. It suggests that like what works in politics is not, you know, the convincing video that takes a credulous swing voter from one side to another. I mean, that's the kind of theory about how a convincing deepfake would work. But all those garish, crude memes do something different. They don't operate on the sort of credulous swing voter. They operate on the base, right? They operate on people who believe something and then aren't really trying to get convinced. They're trying to get wound up and they're trying to get excited. And they're, you know, they like have some strong feelings and they they do, when they look at Nancy Pelosi, imagine her in a hijab. So it's kind of exciting uh, when Trump retweets an image of that because they're like, yeah, that that is how it feels to me. Um, and, and so that is really effective in politics. It just doesn't seem like the kind of delicate sophistication that like is so real that it almost works like that doesn't seem to be the political game uh which makes sense because like most of politics seems to be people with strong feelings who are looking for outlets for them rather than people who are swing voters who are like really interested in like scanning the media to make up their minds one way or the other yeah, I mean, in, in your piece, you make the case that it doesn't necessarily matter how convincing a deep fake actually is, because even something that's just obviously fake and cartoonish can um, reinforce a person's outlook. So, I mean, based on that, is it right to say that the epistemic apocalypse that we were talking about earlier, that that's already come? It just doesn't necessarily rely on deep fakes for evidence? Yeah, I mean, so if by epistemic apocalypse, you mean a lot of people believe things that are not true in politics and believe them really fervently, and that's a concern. We are there. Uh, but is that because we're in the mirror world where no one knows what's real and no one trusts evidence? Not really. I mean, that whole story, look, what's really interesting is that the falsehoods that people believe, the really consequential falsehoods that people believe in the United States, like Obama wasn't born in the United States, or COVID is a hoax, or politics is run by a ring of child molesters. None of that has depended on anything but textual evidence. That is, Those have just been sentences that people believed. I mean, you know, there's like a whole accoutrement of internet stuff, but basically those are verbal lies and those have done the trick. So we're we're definitely in a space where people believe false things, but it doesn't seem like it's because our ability to rely on the evidence of our own eyes is the problem. In fact, you could argue that now has been a kind of golden age for uh, our reliance on audiovisual evidence, um, from Me Too to Black Lives Matter uh, to the Trump indictments. We are still able to rely on audiovisual evidence in really consequential and important ways. I mean, why is it the case that people are willing to believe the most outlandish political lies, you know, just like misinformation, you know, textual misinformation that seems kind of bonkers. I mean, why is it that that is so effective, especially now that we see that convincing evidence in the form of deep fakes isn't effective? Like, why is it that those things latch on? It's, uh, you know, my sense of it is that that things work when they correspond to what the sociologist Arlie Hochschild called our deep stories. So, you know, is it true that politics is run by a ring of child molesters? No, but that does sort of scratch an itch that you might have when you think politics is controlled by people who have different interests in mind, who are not accountable to me, who feel very remote from me, and I'm worried about what their designs are for the world and they don't seem to include me. Uh, it's not too much of an emotional hop from that set of totally straightforward concerns to, okay, it's all child molesters. And it turns out that 
when you have latched onto one of those deep stories, one of them just sort of satisfies whatever, you know, emotional urge you have to make sense of your world. Evidence doesn't really seem to be the point. Evidence doesn't do a lot to get us to those stories and evidence doesn't do a lot to get us out of those stories. It's actually really hard to talk people down once they've latched onto one of those. Those stories have a way of just sticking in our minds. You know, in some ways, it seems like we're we're lucky, obviously, that deepfakes haven't, um, you know, taken off in the way that we thought they would in the realm of politics. And I'm wondering, like, do you think that if they were to take off, that we would be prepared for that? Do you think that, like, social media companies that have invested in trying to combat misinformation and, you know, just like sort of like fact-checking apparatuses that they are, in fact, prepared to combat deepfakes just because, like, they're so used to combating normal misinformation? Or do you think that we're really fortunate that deepfakes haven't taken off because we just aren't prepared for that, kind of doing that kind of, like, digital detection at all? Uh, We are really fortunate. So let's just talk about that digital detection. Um, The essay I wrote is... um, is a, is a review essay about a book by a computer scientist called Walter Shirer. And the book is called A History of Fake Things on the Internet. Uh, and Shirer is part of this group of researchers, uh, media forensic specialists who've been worried about political deepfakes and who are trying to prepare. And what that preparation looks like largely is, um, can we find ways to automatically detect deepfakes on a web scale? Meaning that like, we're not just doing it for like an individual file, but like we just have a way of detecting a deepfake whenever they crop up. And YouTube can use this technology so that whenever anyone tries to load a deepfake, it will just automatically deny it. Um, that would be the technological silver bullet, and we are not there. Um, my sense is from reading interviews with leading computer scientists is that the uh, robbers are out running the cops uh, and that all the kinds of preventative technologies we have to automatically identify deepfakes can, you know, very quickly in the next generation be outmaneuvered by people who find new ways to create deepfakes. Um, So I don't think that we have the tools to sort of defend ourselves against an onslaught of political deepfakes if we start getting one. So that's the one doomsday element here, perhaps, that like... um it's an open field and we're just sort of fortunate that people haven't started to take advantage of it in a in a real politically effective way. Yeah, but to be really worried about that, you also have to think that once deepfakes enter the arena, everything is all over. That the only thing that has kept us safe from political deepfakes is the fact that they haven't been released yet. Uh, and I'm just not sure that's correct because my sense is that even if we were in a media ecology that had a lot of political deepfakes in it, you know, we have ways of dealing with that. You know, it might be that we just trust video a little less. It might be that we look for, you know, other forms of verification. But I'm not totally convinced that that just turns us into a twitching mess. Do you anticipate any of this changing? In your piece, for instance, you mentioned that the war in Gaza could be the kind of subject where a bomb of malicious deepfakes could go off. Why do you you think that that issue in particular is one that could be ripe for deepfakes? I think political deepfakes seem the most dangerous when there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of like, what just happened yesterday because we're going to make a consequential decision today. So in some ways it's less the, you know, P-tape scenario and it's more the, you know, in the fog of war, someone releases a convincing deepfake and that causes tensions to ratchet up or that causes a new weapon to be released or something like that. Um, So I think a war scenario is the most worrisome scenario. But again, you know, when people are fighting wars and making military decisions, um, at least heads of militaries have some ability to, 
you know, assess video. Is this accurate? Is this manipulated? Do we trust the source? Um, so I don't think just the mere appearance of a convincing deepfake would be enough to send everyone into a tizzy. I think we have safeguards against that. One thing that's in your piece that's really interesting is just um, you quote a historian talking about, like, the the politics of outrageous expression. Yeah, Sam Lebovic. Yeah, I'm wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about that. Um, that phrase really just seems like, um, I feel like it really synthesizes our moment. <laughs> it does, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, I, I am now a de-alarmist about political deepfakes. I don't think that we are imminently going to get flooded with them, and I don't think they're going to totally derange us. But that... I don't think means that we should be totally comfortable with our media ecology right now because we are surrounded by manipulated media. And it's not that it deceives us, but it does other things to us. It damages us in other ways, right? If a lot of our politics happens through memes and gifts and, you know, like stunting on the opponent in that kind of way, I mean, that's not really arguments, right? And and it turns politics into this sort of gladiatorial arena where you win points, not by advancing useful policies, but by you know, insulting your opponent in some entertaining way. Uh, and so even if the manipulated media isn't deceiving us, it's kind of bringing out the worst qualities in us. And you can imagine ways in which manipulated media can and, and indeed has been helpful. I mean, it's, it's a form of artistic representation, and sometimes that clarifies things for us. But I, I feel like it's not really doing that right now. I feel like we're getting more and more politics by meme. Um, and that doesn't feel like that's feeding into our best instincts. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm wondering what you think we can do about that, because I feel like it's continuing to get worse. And I, I do think it's also interesting that, like, as technology gets better, we continue to kind of rely on these older, more lo-fi forms of misinformation and memes. How are we supposed to protect ourselves against that? Like, how do you fight it when it's so low-tech? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, I, I think the people who are most concerned about political deepfakes want to find ways to either digitally watermark them or automatically detect them so that you can purge the media ecology of manipulated video in that way. I think that's pretty implausible when we're talking not about deepfakes, but about entertainingly manipulated content. In fact, I think it would re represent a serious crackdown on free expression and, and not one that I'd be eager to support. Um, the historian that, that you mentioned, Sam Lebovic, who has that phrase, the um, politics of outrageous expression, sees it not as a problem with the forms of expression available to us, but as the problem of a kind of emptied media environment. So the rise, the 21st century and the sort of rise of that sort of politics by taunting has come at the same time as we've seen a massive hollowing out of journalism. Just a lot of the local and regional journalism staffs have just been completely depleted. So we are seeing, we're in a sort of information poorer environment, Lebovic argues, and that really opens the way for a different form of politics that's sort of mainly about vibes and feeling um, rather than about information. That's interesting. I mean, so you think that like the media ecology falling apart and there just being fewer publications that are doing reliable work, that that has opened up a space for like, I can see how that would lead to like more, you know, sort of like fake news articles and whatnot. But like, does that open up the floodgates for just like memes and political content of any kind in order to just kind of like fill up these platforms instead? So that's, I mean, that's Lebovic's theory is that actually people are not totally nourished uh, by gifts. <laughs> and there are real reasons why people might prefer to have 
better, more useful, more informative journalism and information. Uh, and in the absence of that, we kind of just rely on the sort of junk food equivalent. So he has this, this theory, which is counterintuitive, but but provocative, which is that we are living in an age of the underproduction of information. And it's so weird because we talk about now as the information age and we feel like we're flooded with content. But if you think about that content, actually, a lot of it is really shallow and thin in terms of what it actually tells you that's useful that you didn't know. Uh, and so much of it is just sort of repackaging or, you know, sort of emotionally commenting on the like five facts that you already knew about whatever situation you're interested in. Thank you so much, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Absolutely a pleasure and a pleasure to talk about something, a danger that is not overtaking the world. Yeah, for once. <laughs> or for now. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Immervar is Northwestern University's Bergen Evans professor in the humanities. You can read his essay, What the Doomsayers Get Wrong About Deepfakes, in this week's special issue on artificial intelligence. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with support from Sydney Cobb and from Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton-Brown. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.